On Sunday mornings, we are in a series that we are called, that I've titled, Better Together. And it's really a, a series designed to talk about the relationships that we all need. Uh, not just from a, a relational, psychological perspective, but really from a biblical perspective. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that it's not good for someone to be alone, for man to be alone. Of course, that was true with Adam, but we believe that it's true in our case as well. That we were designed to be, as we talked about in the very first week, in relationship with God. That can only happen through Jesus Christ, and so he becomes the vine, we become the branches. We're going to talk about that in other ways as well. We talked about, as moms, how they were not designed to do it alone, and that they're not alone. We looked at Hannah's story. Today, we're going to look at the church, the head being Christ and the body being the church. The problem is, is that especially in our culture today, uh, there's a lot of people who sort of say, you know, I love Jesus, a Jesus I have no problem with. I, I, I love Jesus very much, but the church, not so much. The, the church, I could go without. I, I love Jesus and me and Jesus are great, but, but I don't need the rest of the church. And... Um, when we think about that, the, the real reason, what they're really saying, if you think about church, church is not the building, okay? It's not the, the, the place. Uh, church is the people of following Christ. What they're really saying is, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be with all the other people following Jesus. And um, if you've been in the church long enough, you can probably identify with that sentiment. It's hard sometimes. Uh, people are messy. Uh, let me give you a, an illustration that you can probably relate to pretty well. As I said earlier, we are in the process of updating the carpet. And so for most of the week, the auditorium that you're sitting in now looks something like this. And as I walked by one day, I was looking at this section right here. Uh, there was something that caught my eye. Now, I'm not casting any judgment here, and, and I'm not sure if you can see it in our in our projection system or not. You may have to turn down the lights a little more, but there is something. I, I don't know if you can see it, but I, what is with this section? Uh, are, I mean, do you see all the dirt lines there in the carpet? Are, are you all coming to church after you get done with your shift at the mine, or... What exactly is on the bottom of your feet? Now, I, I'm joking. I'm not really judging this section too harshly. Um, because the truth is, there was dirt lines on this section and this section. And a lot of dirt right in this section. <laughs> and a lot of dirt here. And a lot of dirt here. And I thought, man, that's a great, that's a perfect analogy for what I'm talking about. Because some people don't like the dirt and the mess caused by people. I mean, honestly, if we, if we were really truthful about it, we could have prevented that problem 20 years ago. We could have said, first of all, we're going to put big, big signs on the doors that say no drinks of any kind. At all. And 
and, and we're going to say you can't come to church on a day when it's raining or sleeting or snowing. Basically, every other day in Kansas, you're not coming to church because we don't want you to get the carpet dirty. And we're going to say all the young families, we don't really want you to bring your babies and your children because they're messy. And they spill things. And we would have a beautiful church. No, we wouldn't. No, we'd have a building with really clean carpet. We wouldn't have church. Because when church happens, people happen. And there's a good and a bad to that. People bring with them a whole lot of dirt. People bring with them a whole lot of mess. The objection is for most people who don't like the church is they feel like the church is a place where people come and hide their dirt. They pretend like they don't have any dirt or they pretend like their dirt is not as dirty as other people's dirt. And that is a problem. So can we just identify this morning and just everybody say, look at your neighbor and say, I got dirt. We can pretend we are a church without dirt. We can pretend we're a church without grunge. But that's not the kind of church that we're going to be. Now, we got to be careful here. We don't want to revel in the dirt and just be proud and just boast and brag about uh, sin and, and all of that stuff. That's not healthy either. But we got to be realistic about who we are and that we are messy by ourselves. And that is why we follow a Messiah. Some people just say, I'm done with the church. They say, I, that people at church, church-going people, they are just the most hypocritical, arrogant, judgmental type of people. Ignoring the fact that when they make a statement like that, it's sort of hypocritical and a little bit arrogant about how judgmental they're being towards church people. Can I get, oh yeah? We understand we're messy. We identify with the fact that we all bring stuff to church that's problematic, that we're working on, that we're trying to deal with, that we're trying to get through. But may we be an honest church. And this is why I believe Jesus established the church. Not just so that we would have a savior, but that we'd have a group of people that we can work and walk through life together. And we say, I understand you got dirt. I got it too. Look at the bottom of my shoe. Just terrible. But we're following a Savior who washed the disciples' feet and is going to help us wash our own feet and wash the feet of others. Now, if we understand that, we're going to turn to our key verse today, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, in my opinion, answers the question, why bother with the church? Why go through all the trouble? Of dealing with dirty people. Why bother being a part of a group of people who are just as imperfect as you are? There's a reason for that. And the analogy that's used in scripture a lot of times is a body. And we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at this. If you don't have it, it's on the screen for you. But Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. In the context... 
Paul is speaking to a church and he's talking about the necessity of unity. And he prays for them in that beautiful prayer. And verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, he's, he's, in the verses previous, he said, you, I don't want you to be infantile. I, I don't want you to be immature in your thinking. I don't want you to be blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine and teaching. But he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, catch that, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Why are we here? Why be a part of a group of people? Because you need some help. And you need some help not just from Jesus, but you need some help from the other parts of the body. You are the body of Christ. In short, we as the body of Christ are better together. There was a church in the New Testament. Uh, The church was in the city of Corinth. This church had a lot of problems. Okay, They put the fun in dysfunction. They had all sorts of problems and issues with division and uh, marrying people, members of your own family, and taking pride in their spiritual gifts. They just had all sorts of issues. And Paul's trying to deal with the issues. He's trying to deal with the questions. But in chapter 12, verse 27, he says, you are the body of Christ. So act like it. Each one of you is part of it. So act like it. You are a body of Christ. Now, every part's different. Some people are hands. Some people are feet. Some people are eyes. Some people are ears. Some people, you know, every part has a part. But every part needs all of the other parts to work. And we understand that if we think about our own physical human bodies. That your brain controls every part. But that your eyes depend on your ears. And, and your ears better be working so that your mouth knows what to say. That your sense of taste and your sense of smell depend a great deal on one another. And if you ever thought the little toe didn't matter, just try stubbing it one time. Every part matters. Every part works together. And every part is you. So you've got to do your part, number one, and you have to acknowledge that there are a lot of other parts in this body Besides you. So we work together. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning very quickly. The first function of this body. The first thing that I think we do great together is that we speak what is true. In the early church, uh, Acts chapter 2, Luke gives us the picture of the early believers. And Peter has preached this rousing sermon. Thousands of people have responded. They've been buried with Christ for the forgiveness of sins in baptism. And they have now the Holy Spirit. And I imagine this group of thousands of people sort of having the after Pentecost moment. What do we do now? I mean, I mean, we're in Christ. We're following him. We've been forgiven. But what now? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, gives us a beautiful picture. We're unfortunately, just don't have time to go into all of it. But one of the first things that they say is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
You see, they didn't have the option to open up a Bible. The, 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 the text that we have wouldn't be written for decades. And of course, they had the Old Testament, and the scrolls, and the Jewish people probably would have learned about some of those things from the synagogue. But they didn't have it right in front of them, very likely. And so what it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the teaching of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, Thomas, James, again, Thaddeus, Simon, and, well, forget about Judas. But they devoted themselves to the teaching of the men that Jesus had entrusted to teach and to bring the kingdom in. And so they devoted themselves. They listened to what they said. But they didn't just listen. They didn't just study it. They didn't just think about it. They applied it. They began to put it into practice with one another. And the story of Acts is all about how they devoted themselves, not just to knowing the word, but to living out the word day to day. I love this picture of the early church that Luke gives us. In Acts chapter 17, about 15 chapters later, there's this beautiful picture, and he records it. He says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than of the Thessalonians because they received the message with great eagerness and they did something very important. You see, after they had filled in the outline, I don't know if they had outlines or not. After they had thought about what Paul said, they went home and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul said, if what the apostle Paul said was true. They, they, they verified it against the standard, you see. They, they understood what was true and they verified what was true. Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, he said, Father, sanctify them, meaning to make holy, to set apart by the truth. Or some translations say, by your truth, your word is true. You can't speak what's true. You can't teach what's true. You can't know what's true unless you spend some time with what's true. The Apostle Paul gave Timothy, and he also gave guys like me, this admonition. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, preach the word. Be instant, constant, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come, this is why it's important, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine or sound teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll subscribe to a lot of different podcasts. They'll watch a lot of different people on YouTube. Why? Because they want to surround themselves with a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside unto myths. We live in an age where it's so common to say the word, I feel. That's a common conversation. Well, I feel like, well, I feel like maybe the facts don't care about your feelings. Maybe the truth is more important than what feels right. We live in an age where people say, well, this is my truth. This is what I believe. And this, my truth, may be different than your truth. And that just leads to chaos. There is one standard, according to Jesus, to what is true. It is his word, which is constant, which does not change, which is as true as when it was uttered and inspired and written as it is today. His word is constant. It is forever established in the heavens. And it does not change like the winds or the shifting sands. 
It is true and it's right. We live in an age where people say, well, this is my truth. No, what's not important, your, your truth does not matter unless it abides with God's truth. Unless it's aligned with what he teaches and what he says. In today's world, one of the most loving things you can do is to tell people the truth. To speak the truth in love. And so that's what we do, endeavor to do as a body. Second thing we do is we grow up and we mature. Now, this is not just talking about aging, the aging process. You know, of physical maturing. You can be 80 years old and be a spiritual infant. You can have spent your life in the pew. But if Christ has not been in you, then no growth will have happened. We must endeavor to mature. It's not just to this group. It's to every group. To mature, to grow up in Christ. Peter... Think about how he matured while he walked with Christ. He went from a common, ordinary, uneducated fisherman with maybe a bit of a swearing problem to the first preacher of the gospel sermon. How'd that happen? Because he walked with Jesus. He matured. He grew up. I love the church because we have patience for people who are still growing. Oh, I could tell you some stories about people who have patiently, lovingly come alongside and said, Toby, let me help you. That's good. That's what the church should do. That's the purpose. But you got to do that in love or it won't be received well. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. This is an interesting uh, set of scriptures. Paul says to Titus, Titus verse, chapter 2 verse 1. He says, you, however, must teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And then, almost as if unconnected, he goes on to say this. Teach the old men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, here's what I got when I read through Titus chapter 2. It says, teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine. And then he says, first I want you to go to the older men and tell them to act right. Then I want you to go to the older women and tell them to act right. And then when they're acting right, I want the older women to teach the younger women. I want the older men to teach the younger men. Why? Because this is how it works in the church. You see, the church was designed to be a generationally balanced. I'll use the term cross-generational. If you go into a church and you look at the group of people and you look across the group of people and all you see is a whole lot of cotton in the fields, as one preacher used to say. Or maybe you see some very shiny fields. There's no babies in the nursery. There's no interruptions in service because there's no children. That's not healthy. Oh, they'll have a lot of wisdom, but they'll be very comfortable. 
There will be no passion, very little vision, no energy. Now, you can go to the other extreme and go to a church that has a cool band and a laser light show. You see skinny jeans and lattes everywhere. And they will have passion and enthusiasm, be excited about everything, but they will have no direction. They will have no wisdom. They will have no experience. And so what you want, ideally, is to have a blend, the Titus 2 blend, where we say, here's what the older people to do and teach them to act right so that they are able to teach sound doctrine. Why? So they're all in ministry? Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying all of them will teach you. We, we know we're supposed to love, but how do we know how to love? By what we see from other people. We know we're supposed to be patient, so how do we practice patience? By what we see in other people. You see, there's this way we teach one another, and it doesn't happen just right here. It happens as you one another together. It sounds good. It sounds being, you know, a balanced church, doing things like Titus 2, doing things like men's groups and prayer pals and family camp. Those are all good things, but it'll make you uncomfortable. And I'll, I'll prove it here in just a minute. I want you to think about the groups that you associate with here at church. When you think about those groups, how many of them have other people that are either 30 years older than you? Or 30 years younger than you in the same group. You see, it's easy like water to just seek our own level. But what scripture calls us to is to pay attention to the wisdom of the years. And to not discourage the passion and the enthusiasm of youth. A balanced church needs to blend together. And it starts with the youth group. Uh, we have a sizable youth group. Um, if you don't know, this is kind of usually where they sit most Sundays and Wednesdays. Could I ask the youth group to stand this morning? Now, if you happen to be here on a Sunday night, and uh, or if you got to go to teen camp, and you were hearing the last song of the devotional, you would probably hear something like this. Go ahead. It's a beautiful song. We sing it in here. I love to hear them sing it because they can't sing it without swaying. I mean, it's just a natural kind of sway song. You know? It's a beautiful song. But what we want to think about is that in order for this group to be a part of not just Northside, but a part of the church. By the way, more and more people say we're losing this generation. We gotta be intentional. We gotta be purposeful. We gotta just not leave them to themselves. I think we do a pretty good job in a lot of different ways. But we have to do something to be intentional and reach across the generation gap. So this morning I want to ask you guys to come down here and just stand along the front two or three steps. Come on down. Come on quickly. They sure do love me, I know. Just sit right here on the stairs. Get on the stairs. Bottom floor, second step, third step, whatever you want to do. Here's what we're gonna do. I want to challenge our congregation to do something right now. We're going to sing. Charles is going to sing this song that we just sang. And they are going to stand up here. Whoa. They are going to stand up here. They are going to stand up here awkwardly until something happens. And what needs to happen is this. Anyone except their own parents, okay? Parents of teens are excluded from this. But anyone from the congregation needs to come down and get one of these teens. 
And they're going to sit with you and sing with you and be with you for the rest of worship. And not just today, I want to challenge you over the next month to get to know this teen and their parents and invest in their lives. You say, what? That's hard. Good. I'm I'm glad it's hard for you. I don't even know their names. Good. What you do is you go up here and you say, hi, I don't know your name, but I'm going to get to know your name. You just come on down and you bring them with you. Okay. By the way, this is sweet Anna. Okay. But you find one, whichever one you think looks the least menacing and come and bring them with you. I want you to do it. And they're going to come sit with you. You say, well, wait a second. We're a full crowd this morning. We don't have enough room. Oh, I guess maybe you're going to have to get uncomfortable and get out of your seats and maybe take that teen and go sit right back down here. Let's do it right now. Charles is going to lead us in the song, and they'll stand awkwardly till you come get him. Let's stand and sing. You're my brother, you're my sister, so take me by the hand. Together we will work until he comes. There's no hope that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. As long as there is love. We will stand. You're my brother, you're my sister, so take me by the hand. Together we will work until we come. There's no foe that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. As long as there is love, we will stand. beautiful song. It's a beautiful song sung well, but a church has to work at it. You can be seated now. Now, if you didn't come and get somebody, that's okay. The challenge is still for you. If you're a part of the Romeos, the retired old men eating out, next time you go out together to eat together with the fellow Romeos, by the way, great acronym, I want to challenge you to sit around that table and say, could each of us invite a young dad and encourage him to come to our next breakfast so that we can pray with him and read some scripture and encourage him? If you're in a men's group or if you're a Titus 2 does this pretty well already, but think about who you can invite to be with you that is not part of that group that's from a different generation. Take an older Christian man to lunch and ask for his counsel and say, "If, if you could speak to you 30 years ago. What would you do differently? And just let the floodgates open. The single senior ladies, I know you guys have a game night every now and uh, game day and you'll come together and you'll eat lunch. You know, I want to challenge you at your next one to gather together and make a list of some young moms and invite them to one. And have a pray date and come together and, and encourage one another and pray for one another because you can... You can identify, oh, it may have been decades ago, but you can identify with what they've been through. This year at family camp, with our theme being of Joseph, I think it'd be really cool to have a prayer session, a Genesis 49 Jacob blessing. And we gathered everyone who's 50 and older into a room and we asked them to pray for and bless and be with and guide and counsel and teach and love. Everyone in that room who's 49 and under. Small groups. Take some time. Get a list of people who've been married more than 50 years. 
Invite them to your small group and just have a time and say, teach us how to go the distance because there's not many marriages making it these days. Teach us how to do that. Tell us what you did. If you're a widow or widower and you're experiencing that void in your life, find someone who's younger and encourage them and pray with them. Lots of ways to grow and mature. Titus 2 tells us that's the way sound doctrine happens. Not so much from here. Oh, this is important. But what happened just now and what will happen in the weeks and months to come, so, so important. Because that's what keeps the next generation in the church. It's Paul teaching Timothy. It's being patient with him and loving him and making sure he goes the distance. And finally... Um, number three, we serve one another in need. Romans chapter 12 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. First Peter 4.10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. I want you to think of what you're gifted at, what you're talented at, what you know God's given you the ability to do, and I want you to ask the question, how are you using it? Uh, this morning, I want you to look back, and I want you to look up, and look at Greg and Sharon McCubbin. Now, Greg and Sharon McCubbin have some great skills in videography and video editing, IT, and, and they have been setting up uh, videotaping since the beginning of the year, the morning sermons, and setting up a video, Vimeo channel so that you can download those during the week and have them available to you mobile. I don't know why you want to see all of this on your mobile phone, but anyway. They do that selflessly and sacrificially every week because they're using the gift they've been given to serve others. And if you're gifted in that area, go talk to Greg and Sharon and say, hey, I'd like to help. How can I help? And they'll put you to work. Matt Babish is good at painting. And so he's renovated this end of the kids wing for safari. He's renovated the teen room. He's done a lot of that stuff because he's good and he's using his gift to serve others. So my question is, what gift do you have? You say, well, I don't have a gift. I'm just not very good at anything. Good. Because this year at Northside, we have a lot of things that don't take any special talent. They just take someone who's willing to be uncomfortable and who's willing to be inconvenienced and to go and serve. And so if a picture is worth a thousand words, then let me give you about 20,000 words in 60 seconds. You see, all of this stuff happens because of you, what we're doing through the Light of Life ministry. We're partnering with these four ministries, and we're going outside Northside, and we're serving people in the community. We're loving people we don't know. We're partnering with good things already happening that aren't of us. They're just doing good, and we're challenging every Northsider to give $20 in 17 hours towards Celebrate Recovery to Carpenter Place, Simple House, or Soup Kitchen. And all it requires is someone who's willing to say, okay, I'll do that. And, and thank you so much, by the way. We're, here we are almost a little over a third of the way, and you guys have responded so wonderfully. And there are pictures here that, uh, you know, there are pictures that don't even tell the whole story. Because there's people that don't want to get in the camera, and there's people who want to be anonymous. Someone wrote a check. I don't even know who it was, but they wrote a check for $500 and said to the CR ministry, buy as many Bibles as you can. And they don't want any credit for that. They just wanted to be the light. 
We have a wonderful opportunity to serve, not just inside, but to serve outside. May we do that together as a body. Finally, the last point, we get to set a Christ-like example. Paul said, to, back to the problematic church at Corinth, he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In the beautiful, imperfect body of Christ, we get the personification of the fruits of the Spirit. You know the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's not just about those words in the book. You get to say, when I think of love, I think of Aaron Banning, who selflessly, though he's not an outspoken person, will come down front and hug and pray with someone who has responded because he's an encourager. Or I think of Margie Casebold, who has a heart for these teens and has for many years because she loves them and she wants to see them in heaven. And I think of people who exhibit joy like Ben Tyson. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen him lead children's training hour, but that that shouldn't be a joyful process, but he he is a joyful person. Or I think of beautiful Joy Kingsley, who has always a smile on her face and encouraging words. She lives up to her name very well. Or someone who exhibits peace when I see Justin Abraham, who comes up beside anyone, a stranger or a longtime member. Someone who's graceful or someone who's grumpy, and he'll just put an arm around him and say, I love you. How can I pray for you this week? Or think of Carrie Harris, who has just so much joy in her life and is willing to, to go the extra mile and everything. And Paul Gutierrez, who exhibits patience so well. And Glenda Hall and Diane Emery, who teach the kindergartners. That takes patience, by the way. Or thinking of kindness, I think of Joy Yeoman. She's, I've never heard a negative word from Joy. Or Ryan Watson, who gracefully, lovingly, happily leads worship and who is kind to other people. Uh, the goodness of Larry Ab- Allen or Abby Griffith, the faithfulness of Mary Allen and Stacy Yeoman, who've been teaching the kindergarten class for years, the faithfulness of Ernie and Rosalie Stevens, who have faithfully saw to the needs of the Lord's Supper and locking up the building and opening the building for many years. The, the gentleness of Larry Potter and Stacy Harrington. The self-control of Leanne Woodard and Ryan Woodard as they teach the loft class and all of them come out alive. Now, I hope you didn't write all those names down because that's my list. You need to make your own list. You need to think of people who exhibit the qualities. You see, that's the purpose of the body is to set a good example. And I don't just want you to make a list of people who exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. I want you... To acknowledge those people, send them a note, send them a text message, a Facebook message, whatever way to acknowledge that you are an example for me. Make your list. The church is a beautiful body. And I know it's trendy and popular to be critical, but if the church is the bride of Christ, then those who are critical of it are wife beaters. We should honor the church. She is not perfect, but she has a perfect head and a perfect husband. And he is coming back to reclaim her. And make her holy once and for all. And we want all of you to be a part of the body. And to make it better. And to make it the kind of place that Jesus called it to be. Truly we are better together than we are alone. 
And if you've had problems, if you've met up, I mean, I know we've got our share of critics and angry people in the church. I get it. But there are lots of people who aren't that way and who make me say, I'm going to stay one more day. I'm going to stay one more week because it's a beautiful body. This morning, if you're not a part of that body, I want to call you to be a part of that body. Jesus said you enter it through faith and baptism. And when you do that, then you become a part of the body and you get to do your part. It's not a perfect place, but she does follow a perfect Savior. And we want to help you do that. And if you have any other need, maybe you're a wounded, hurting part of this body and you need the tender care of one another. Let us help you with that. Whatever your need might be, we'll meet you down front and serve you in any way we can as together we stand and sing.